This is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. <clears throat> I didn't even know Netflix had a, had a piece on Alexander until something came up on Twitter on a, an account called End Wokeness, where it said, Netflix made a do new documentary about Alexander the Great. Within the first eight minutes, they turned him gay. Wow, there was so much to think about in that tweet. Um... Many of us over the last number of years have had an education in how much the Jesus revolution changed sexuality and its norms worldwide, everywhere that Christianity went. Well, the really interesting thing about Alexander really isn't the fact that he behaved like a um, prince in the classical world in terms of his sex life. It's a little bit more interesting that, in fact, he was called a son of God. And the story on Netflix, I saw the first episode, at least partially, uh, that they mentioned, and that was interesting, too, in terms of the way it was framed. Why was Alexander a son of Zeus? And why did people easily believe that? And why might they believe that? How could this young man conquer the world? And why did that make him a god? Completely unrelated to this, someone pointed me to the work of Thomas Carlyle, who wrote a book in 1840 on heroes. And the first chapter grabbed my attention right away. Let us look for a little, let's let us look for a little at the hero as divinity, the oldest form of heroism. Now that was really interesting. Now, of course. Uh, hero ideas and motifs and archetypes have been around quite a bit. Um, Joseph Campbell wrote Hero with a Thousand Faces, the monomyth or the one story that inhabits seemingly all the hero movies has been around quite a while and we've become familiar with this. Now, in, secular, in a secular age, people don't necessarily connect that with a god, but pretty much everyone in the ancient world would. The reason, the, the way that you know Alexander the Great is a god in the ancient world is because, in fact, he conquered the world. If he had failed to conquer the world, then he wouldn't be a god. That's kind of the way that goes. And those categories are very different from the categories that we tend to walk around with here because of Christianity. Now, we might think that, but one of my favorite go-to pieces during the Trump presidency was this story out of India of one young man um, here setting up an, an idol to President Donald Trump and setting up an altar and doing little sacrifices to him. And in fact, that is very much in keeping with that ancient way of thinking. We are quite clear as to what sort of god or hero we want. We want someone who's going to be a winner. We want someone who's going to conquer. We want someone who's going to change the world. And we want someone who's going to change the world in alignment with how we think the world should be changed. Now, today's story begins and in a place on the way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, that might just sound like one of those strange biblical names, but if you look at What's in the title, Caesarea, well, that's Caesar. Philippi, well, what famous Philip is there in history? Well, Philip of Macedonia, 
who just so happens to be the father of Alexander the Great. My, 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 what a coincidence. Why on earth, well, we're about to see which story happens here, why on earth would this conversation happen in a place in one of the villages around a city named Caesarea Philippi? And, and, and how, would, how could such a city be named? Well, if you look for Caesarea Philippi on the map today, you won't find it. Why? Well, it's in a place called the Golan Heights, which some of you might know that after the Six-Day War is basically kind of a no-man's land between Israel and Syria, and still a contested one. Um, it's called Banias, or Banyas. Um, it's a site in the Golan Heights near a natural spring once associated with the Greek god Pan. Well, that's interesting. What What is the Greek god Pan? Well, the Greek god Pan is the god of of the god of the wild, the god of shepherds, and the god of flocks, of rustic music, and the companion of nymphs. He's associated with fertility and, and the season of spring. It's located at the foot of Mount Hermon, north of the Golan Heights in the Israeli portion. The spring is the source of the Benias River, one of the main tributaries of the Jordan River. And in fact, there is an ancient city there, um, that was founded sometimes after the conquest of, bum, 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 Alexander the Great, the god we knew we got to meet in the first slide and who is now on Netflix, not in sort of a, a Victorian motif, which would make us looking back through history at Alexander sort of a man's man who would never do the kind of thing that we see in Netflix, hence sort of evoking the, the response that this person gave. And the city is found, well, this city is the location of this conversation we're about to see. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Now, John the Baptist and Elijah, well, prophets, heroes? Uh... And still others, one of the prophets. That seems to be where people are kind of locating Jesus. But what about you, he asks. Now, we've seen the disciples, and they've been often terrified of Jesus after he stills the storm. They wonder what on earth he is. And after he drives out legion, and then he, and then he when this woman sort of pickpockets a miracle off his clothing... He's kind and gentle to her, and he restores Jairus' daughter to life. Okay, disciples, you've been watching me for a while. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, speaking for the rest of them, no doubt. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Hmm. But what on earth did that word mean? What was a Messiah? A Christ. What was a son of God? Well, Julius Caesar was declared a god by the Roman Senate, making Caesar Augustus a son of God. Tiberius, the son of Caesar Augustus, was now on the throne. Oh, lineages, divine lineage there. Um, Alexander the Great, a son of God. Just gods all around. Hmm. Who do you say that I am? You're a Messiah. Oh, they're not going to say a God. That would not be very Jewish of them, but 
you're a rescuer, you're a hero, you're born in the city of David, you're in the lineage of David. We all know what we want you to do. Maybe you'll be like, well, maybe the great politician Caesar Augustus who gave the peace of Rome, or maybe you'll be Alexander the Great who conquered the world at such a young age. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, well, the Son of Man, if you read about him in Daniel 7, he's kind of like one of those figures. He's an emperor. He rules. Must suffer many things. Well, I suppose they suffer in some ways, but that's not really that's not really the focus of what we see them doing. And he must be rejected by the elders. Well, I suppose they should be killed for rejecting him. The chief priests. Well, maybe them too. And the teachers of the law. Off with their heads that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Wait a minute. What, 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 what kind of a story is this? He spoke plainly about that. And if you remember going back, we, he talked about he'd spoken mere in parables to the crowds, but his disciples he spoke plainly. And here he's speaking plainly. This is what the Son of Man, now notice how he doesn't say me, he doesn't say Jesus. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, Mark locates him there. And you find Jesus using this title again and again and again. Peter took him aside because clearly, um, Jesus, you, you don't understand. We're heading to Caesarea Philippi where we've got all of this, we've got all of this stuff around us. You know why we signed up for you, don't you? You, you know what this is about, right, Jesus? I mean, the script is there. David did it to the Philistines. Well, the Maccabees did it to the Greeks. It's time for you to do it to the Romans. We're all waiting for it, Jesus. Come on now. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. This, this, this talk about going and getting killed, um, that, that's not the plan. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter in front of the disciples. Notice all the turning that is being done here. You can see sort of the relational map between them. And Peter is at least going to take him aside and do something very polite. I don't, Jesus, I don't really want to call you out in front of the rest of them, but you, you're doing it wrong. And now Jesus turns and is about to tell Peter in front of everyone, um, no, Peter, you're doing it wrong. In fact, you're doing it so wrong, I'm going to say a really hard thing. Get behind me, friend. No, it doesn't say that. Get behind me, Satan. He just called Peter Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, we could stop right there and talk about that line for the rest of the day. But at least what it means is they've got in their mind everything that everyone would naturally have in their mind, that Jesus will be another Caesar, that Jesus will be another Alexander, that Jesus will be the kind of God 
that ancient empires knew people wanted to aspire to become. A God who will do the kinds of things that nations hope they will do, at least the nations that own such gods. Is Jesus a hero? Now, we've done a lot of talking about heroes. The hero's journey, the hero's story, the hero's narrative, heroes, heroes, heroes. The second chapter, which is how I got into that Thomas Carlyle book, was he makes the argument that Muhammad was a hero because Muhammad was the kind of guy who developed a successful empire. Ta-da! Wouldn't Jesus be... Wouldn't it be smart for Jesus to kind of do like Muhammad? Or do like David? Or do like the Maccabees? Or do like Alexander? Or do like Caesar? Now this question should disrupt us because... Like Peter had in mind with respect to Messiah, well, what is a hero? Not only does he turn and rebuke Peter in front of the disciples, now he calls the crowd. <laughs> and again, you might think, um, you know, Peter was just nice to sort of take Jesus aside and, and, and rebuke him privately. Jesus is taking this up different levels. So he calls the crowd to him with his disciples and says, whoever wants to follow me to Rome, grab a sword and we're going to kill anybody who stands ahead of us. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, now I want you to, many of you have heard this verse often. And so it has no punch. But this word cross here and how he is using it, I want you to remember this when in a little bit in this sermon we're going to talk about how ghastly, how unspeakable, how this was not the kind of image you would use in polite company. Now, some of you listening to this have nice little gold crosses around your neck. or You have nice little crosses on your wall. Nobody would have that. We're going to talk about Justin Brierley's podcast that he just released this week. And he talks about the fact that there's really not a lot in the historical documents about crucifixion because, well, first of all, everybody understood it. And second of all, nobody wanted to think about it because it was just that ugly and ghastly and offensive. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, they have a cross coming to them, their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Well, that's what Caesar did. That's what Alexander did. Didn't they gain the world? Isn't that what Jesus is talking about? And Jesus says, basically, what good is that? What did it ever do for Caesar? Where is he? Well, he's dead and praised. What about Alexander? What good for, well, he's dead and praised. Um, was he killed? Was he poisoned by his troops? Maybe. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit? 
yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now, here again, I know that there's always a little um, drama around this Son of Man phrase when I use it in this way, but the Son of Man is the figure that comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. It's the kind of figure we see in Daniel 7. The Son of Man is, is kind of an emperor-type figure. And, and you kind of imagine a, a general coming with his troops. And he basically says, well, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you then. Yeah, but how, how can I be proud of someone who has a cross? That doesn't make any sense. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see, before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Well, in this context, we're thinking Jesus is just so confusing because on one hand, Peter is trying to give him some good sound advice about how to be the kind of Messiah, the kind of Alexander, the kind of Caesar the kind of David, the kind of Maccabees that everybody knows. Everybody knows how to do that. Get a following, get some swords, throw off the oppressor, build a palace, have a throne, have police, just, just, just do that. And he doesn't. The kingdom coming in power, well, what does that mean? What does this do to all of our implicit definitions of Messiah or hero? Jesus is clearly disrupting it. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's kind of like a palace, right? You're up top of the mountain. It's kind of like a, a, a natural palace, a heavenly palace. This is the palace we've all been waiting for. He did not know what to say. They were frightened. So here it is again. They're terrified of him on the Sea of Galilee when he stills a storm. The village is terrified when the pigs all drown in the lake. The, the, the woman is terrified who, who picked a miracle out of Jesus' pocket. And the one thing that they're not terrified of is, we want you to be Alexander or Caesar or one of these. That's, that's what we, that doesn't scare us. But now, he's showing them something that's terrifying, and their first instinct is, build a palace. Of course it's their first instinct. It's what they've known all along. Jesus is going to begin an enormous, an enormous lesson that goes through the ages of unlearning. What everyone in the world assumes, if you want to save your life.
kill your enemy. Hmm. If you want to save your life, lose it for my sake. Well, what does that mean? Then a cloud appeared and covered them. Aren't there clouds in Daniel 7? And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't seem to know how to do it. Suddenly they looked around and they saw, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Shoot! Moses and Elijah and Jesus together? Boy, those three, they could take on the world. Now we're just back to Jesus who doesn't seem to know how to do it. And when we try to correct him, embarrasses us in front of the crowd. Now, what's with the six days? This is from a commentary by William Lane. The precise temporal reference, six days, is unusual in Mark and indicates that the evangelists attach special importance to this episode. Well, I would think, yeah, it's high mountain, bright light. Yeah, it's important. Six days appears to refer back to the whole complex of teaching which followed Peter's affirmation of Jesus' messianic dignity, but complete wrongheadedness about what Messiahs are, and more particularly the solemn promise of chapter 9. The unveiling of Jesus' glory in the presence of three disciples corresponds to the assurance that some will see. The transfiguration is presented in the terminology of a theophany, God shining which reveals the powerful coming of the kingdom of God. Understood in this light, the precise time reference of verse 2 recalls Exodus 24, 16, where six days designates a time of preparation for the reception of revelation. So in other words, you think you know what that word you're using means. You need to prepare, and I'm going to show you what it means. Does it mean Jesus, king of the world? Yes. He told you the path to getting there, and that's what you've rejected. Mark evidently regarded Jesus' announcement of his approaching suffering as the preparation required for witnessing the disclosure of Christ's true character. In this way, the suffering and glorification of Jesus are intimately associated at the beginning of the narrative as close as at its close close when Jesus speaks to the son speaks of the son of man as an object of contempt in 912 6 days high mountain dazzling white they're terrified that's the parts that are consistent let's build a shelter not quite sure what you want to do Let's put up three shelters. We have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus available, which can charge admission. That's not the path, Peter. That's not the path. The path will be surprising. The path will be unnerving. The path will seem to be absolutely the craziest thing. Aren't would-be Messiahs regularly crucified by Romans? Now, 2,000 years later, you scratch your head. Oh, yeah, he talked about that Park Bar Kokba guy. But, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, don't read history. Now, the transfiguration, I'm not going to go in deeper, partly because there's something just kind of obvious about it. 
He's shining like the sun. At least the ancients would have got that. Sometimes when you deconstruct things, they get less powerful rather than more. And at least at a certain level, the symbolism stuff sort of works on a level that we don't understand. Why do we put flowers on graves? What is that about? But we know it's the right thing to do, even if we don't know why. Jesus is shining like the sun, and we don't know what to do about it. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, in the space of a few verses, that's the second time he said that. And again, as I mentioned last week, at least in the, the sermon, the, the live sermon is always different from the rough draft. Nobody shows up at the tomb, except women who are preparing to embalm him further. Then they kept the matter to themselves, okay, because they're not quite sure what's going on still. And they're discussing, what does he mean by rising from the dead? The, 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 dead, the dead thing? No, that's the, that's the part that we're taking out. You must take up your, if you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Cross, my cross, dead. No, 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 that's that's the part. Alexander dies and it's the end. Caesar dies and it's the end. Romans kill Messiahs and when they die, that's the end. Jesus says, it's not going to be the end with me. Oh, this is this is the most confusing. This is the most confusing God-man we've seen running around in this world. All the other ones I can kind of figure out. But this one, this one, he's really strange. What do we think we want? Well, we call them gods. But there have been lots of them. And, and their enemies call them murderers and evil. Um, they don't really change the world. They just sort of use the main systems of the world to do what's always done. It seems to be those human concerns Jesus was talking about. They just administer the world under the same rules as all the other kingdoms. Get behind me, Satan. Isn't this how Satan administers his kingdom? Jesus says there's a different kingdom. This is from Justin Brierley's podcast, talking about this cross. Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, there is almost nothing in the Roman world more degrading than being crucified. There's no way back from that, right? It was known as punishment that would be given to slaves, and slaves were essentially seen as non-people. There's a famous piece of graffiti we found from the ancient world called Alexamenos Graffiti. And it goes like this. They like to scribble things on the wall. That's not a new thing. It's actually, it seems to be a teenager's doodling. And they doodle a picture of a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And then they have a stick figure person standing next to it saying, Alexamenos worships his God. Hmm. What do you think that was about? 
Who do you think they were trying to mock? Who do you think, why do you think they didn't wear crosses around their neck? Why do you think it's so shocking that Jesus says, take up your cross, when you don't even talk about this thing in polite company? Alexaminus worships his God, and we think that this is actually making fun of Christians. To worship a crucified person is as stupid as worshiping a donkey. And yet, these Christians believe that this person was actually the center of the universe and that this person has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Can you see? Can you see how this changed the world? How all of our definitions have been changed by this man and his cross? If you would be my disciple, take up your cross. Yeah, you get one too. And follow me. Forever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now there is something to hero stories. We do need rescue. We do need transformation. We do need community. We do need a legacy. We do need to transform the town around us. We need, we need all of this hero stuff. And Jesus is, he's both a hero and an anti-hero. Because he's not Alexander and he's not Caesar, but he is Lord. Jesus is Lord, that's what they said. It's the strangest story ever told. How on earth this could happen? And this is why people are still trying to figure it out today. Jesus is our hero in a way, and we must follow him, cross and all. Because he changes heroism along with changing heaven and earth. Amen.